in your book, you have a quote that rhymes with what you were just sharing. For people born into wealth, the lightning that struck at birth may never strike again. And then you add how they need guidance and discipline in managing their costs to remain within the confines of the wealth that has been created for them. It's such a powerful idea when you think about it. Life is short, and the idea that these things uh, happen frequently is is a miracle unto itself. Uh, of course, uh, and uh, the idea that that will happen consistently over time, uh, I think it's it's a scary thing to rely on, and mm -hmm. uh, ultimately, that we as advisors have to. It's it, again, that's part of the higher calling to kind of keep people uh, moving uh, in a deliberate manner uh and and ultimately telling them no sometimes and that mm -hmm. that's a hard part of the job uh it's sometimes you get ignored and ultimately you sometimes you see it five or ten years later on when they wish you had said no more forcefully Welcome to Talking Billions. We talk about big ideas, big inspirations, big topics. We take on the hardest subject of all, money. How to make it, save it, keep it. But our conversations lead us to an even bigger question. What it means to live a rich life beyond money. My guests share their practices, principles, and evergreen wisdom. I'm your host, Bogumil Baranowski, author, TEDx speaker, investor, and a founding partner of Seacard Associates, a boutique investment firm founded in New York City. Join me on this quest to unearth the wisdom of the ages. I'll keep it short. If you want to get in touch with me, head over to my website, Bogomil Baranowski, where I read your emails and reply to all, and I even offer Zoom calls to you, my listeners. If you want to follow my essays, go to Substack. If you're curious about my last book, search for Crisis Investing, If you want to keep up with Talking Billions, subscribe, follow, and please share it around. It means the world to me. There's no marketing budget behind the podcast. There's no ad revenue. It's all word of mouth and genuine curiosity, yours, mine, and that of our guests. On to the show. My guest today is Fraser Rice. Fraser focuses on family office infrastructure, trusts and estates, private company board and charity, multi-generational wealth and trustee consulting for Next Capital. Fraser has written the book Wealth Actually, Intelligent Decision-Making for the 1%, and produces the successful Wealth Actually podcast. He appears on a variety of media and industry panels to discuss wealth management practice, trusts and estates, family dynamics, issues, and tax policy. He's on the board of the New York City Estate Planning Council and is co-head of its programming committee. He received his BA in political science and history from Duke University and his JD from Emory University School of Law. Fraser lives in Manhattan and enjoys golf, travel, horror movies, media production and writing. Today we start with one of my favorite quotes from Fraser's book. Very few of life's important answers are found in a pitch book or a slide deck. He further adds, unfortunately, the financial services industry makes its money from the sale of products. He shares some advice how to navigate this fascinating but challenging environment. We focus on the importance of anticipation when providing advice. We also tackle a big question, what it means to be rich. 
Fraser introduces the distinction between current and legacy wealth, retirement planning versus estate planning. We have a lively discussion about sudden windfalls, and Fraser proposes another way of looking at this life-changing event. Stay tuned until the end when we talk about the real fear of losing it all. Please help me welcome Fraser Rice. Hi, Fraser. How are you? It's so nice to see you. Uh, I'm thrilled to be here, Bokomo. We're we've got a beautiful day in October in New York, which uh, they'll, they'll start being fewer and far between. So I'm glad to be here. It's a beautiful time in New York. I, I like the fall. As you know, I read your book, Wealth Actually: Intelligent Decision Making for the One Percent, and and I really enjoyed it. It really resonated with me, given my background managing money for families, multi generational wealth, and I think you touch on a lot of great questions and you propose some wonderful answers in your books. I want to dive in and learn from you and share it with the audience. But before we get to the book, I like to start those conversations, if you indulge me, talking about childhood and upbringing. And I'm curious how you think that time shaped your relationship with money and led you to the career path that you're on today. Oh, it's a, it's a, Great and broad question. I grew up in Westchester County, New York, which is a mm -hmm. wealthy county in uh, the U.S. and uh, in New York State in particular. Uh, I had a uh, very good education uh, from the public school side of things up until uh, seventh grade. And then I went to a day school in Bedford, New York. And then I went to a boarding school and then uh, Duke for undergrad. Uh, I then worked for uh, New York State Economic Development. So I worked up in Albany for a uh, the agency that promotes economic development in New York, which is a tough job because we have high taxes and all sorts of other annoyances that business people get cranky about. And so that was sort of an interesting uh, part of my uh, background there. I saw really sort of the public sector and, and how that, how people who work within that world view wealth and view stability. Uh, I then went to, I did what other lost souls do. Uh, I didn't want to be a, a civil servant my whole life. I did what other lost souls do and I went to law school. So I was down <laughs> uh, at Emory and uh, I did, had a whole bunch of different experiences there. I worked for the uh, worked for the SEC down in Atlanta for a little bit. I worked for the Federal Reserve when I was down there. I worked for an entertainment lawyer down there, so I saw a different kind of wealth uh, that was involved with that. And they represented hip hop clients, which was mm -hmm. that that uh, that comedy screenplay writes itself, where you drop <laughs> someone like me into that situation, and uh, you see people who have musical talent and come from a different culture, etc. But it was really Really wide, it, I, it widened my eyes to the way different people handle success in different milieus. Um, and the uh, so some lawyering after that, and then uh, I, the billable hour and I weren't going to be very good friends uh, long term. So I uh, moved over to Wilmington Trust. I were, uh, worked with a friend of mine named Tony Guernsey, who started that office. And he liked the idea of lawyers as issue spotters. Uh, at the same time, I hadn't practiced law so long that my answer to everything was no or it depends. Uh, <laughs> and so I think he liked that idea. I worked there for 16 years, uh, which is a long time at one institution. And so I got to see uh, a variety of different types of wealth, private equity, family wealth, the executives, athletes, artists, um, you name it, I had some sort of intersection with it. And then uh, when you work for a trust company, you really delve into multi-decade decisions around wealth. 
much less of a tactical investment approach to things. And mm-hmm. then you have to deal with a lot of structure and tax and, and those types of situations. And then you're dealing with a lot of uh, psychological and behavioral issues as you have people who uh, benefit from the wealth who may not have been involved with its uh, earning or development. And mm-hmm. uh, the education component becomes really uh, important on that front too. So that's uh, a little bit of a background on me. The, the childhood part of it, I would say that uh, really my exposure to wealth didn't, uh, um, didn't exactly happen until I got into the working world really well. I, I, uh, my one regret is that I didn't learn things like the power of compounding, uh, mm-hmm. earlier. I think I really would have benefited from that. I think my folks, uh, bent over backwards to give me a really fabulous education and a really well-rounded one, which I appreciate. And it's gotten me into and out of all sorts of good situations uh, and help protect me from a variety of potential problems and hopefully developed a good set of ethics to go around with it so that I try to do the right thing by people. Uh, but the, the numerical part was the part that probably could have been shorn up a little bit better in the development even given the fancy education that I had, uh, I am a big believer in financial education as fast as possible and getting people used to the concepts of things like the power of compounding and how the stocks and bonds work and how much do things cost. And and that scenario, I think people could benefit from that ahead of making big decisions, which seem to happen earlier and earlier in people's lives. Uh, you can avoid a lot of footfalls uh, by by sort of understanding the math behind what happens on that front. You touched on so many interesting things, but in terms of education, I had the opportunity of spending some time with um, the younger generation of our clients at different points in time. So I've been in the business 18 years, almost 20 years, and some of the 20-year-olds that were with me early on are now responsible for family affairs. And although they chose different careers that have nothing to do with money, finance, law, they have an understanding, they, they speak the language, they can ask good questions. And I feel like it's hugely beneficial to them. Only today, I spoke with somebody who I think sees me as a mentor in some way, who is a younger individual with family wealth. And uh, we sat down, we talked, and he basically asked me, could you show me how to read financial statements? And he says, I, I, that's not what I want to do as a career, but I just want to understand how to read an income statement, balance sheet, and a cash flow statement. And I offered to spend two hours with him and go over that. But those kind of tools, I think, are very beneficial, including the the idea of compounding wealth over time that you mentioned that's worth exploring early on. You touched on something really I, I, interesting. I, I, I want to dive in on something there because mm-hmm. I think it's important. The three most important courses I've taken uh, over the course of fancy studies and all that stuff, I took a computer science class in college, which really mm-hmm. gave me a grounding in how in how things like circuits work and then how you go up to the next level of abstraction with software and then ultimately with things like internet application, although they didn't apply in that course because I'm so old, we didn't really have the internet back then uh, yet. Uh, but then th- that gave me a real if not expertise, at least a comfort in being able to fight my way out of a paper bag vis-a-vis technology and computers so that Mm -hmm. I understood how they worked. Then while I was in law school, I took two classes. One was in finance uh, and one was in uh, sort of a 
consulting business class over at the business school attached to the law school. And that gave me, uh, oh, excuse me, it was an accounting class uh, that was more important than the consulting class. The uh, But the finance and the accounting gave me the uh, some exposure into the language of business that I wouldn't have gotten just by virtue of being in law school by itself. And I just to add on to your point there, sometimes you get really interesting experiences, even if you aren't going to you know, devote your life to them. Exactly. Uh, having having that language in your system makes you makes you a better decision maker, and it certainly gives you more confidence when you're around other people who are in that in that milieu that are uh, that are going to be affecting you over time. I like the point that you made about a long term view working with families the way you've been working, how they think in terms of decades and sometimes a century. And a lot of people in the investment world say how they're long-term thinkers, investors. But a family really takes on a whole different view when you're building a legacy. And you talk about it in the book, and I'll come back to it in a second, but the whole idea of you know, saving for your retirement or building a legacy for multiple generations, it really takes a whole different way of seeing the world, a different perception of rewards and risks, a whole different framework. And there's so much about it in your book, and I'll come back to it. But I want to share with you a quote that really spoke to me in your book. And there's so many, but I have to cherry pick a few. So you write, very few of life's important answers are found in a pitch book or a, or a slide deck. And then you add, unfortunately, the financial services industry makes its money from the sale of products. I, I think it's such a powerful idea, and I'm curious, how do we navigate this world where the biggest answers, the biggest questions we have, they're not in the pitch book? And then people and the families are operating in the world where they're constantly sold on things. So uh, I continue to believe that, even though the book is, you know, it's it's got a couple of years uh, or a little tread off the tires, as it were, but I still believe that intensely in my heart that the the biggest threat to wealth isn't investment ideas or tax advice or uh, you know investing well enough that type of thing. The the biggest threat to wealth to me is poor communication. Uh, mm -hmm. Over time, uh, in my opinion, and I think this is an underpinning uh, equation for the shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves in three generations phenomenon, is that my idea is that liabilities increase geometrically while assets increase linearly, if you're lucky. And that if you have poor communication amongst and between the generations, uh, within family members or elsewhere, that delta between the liabilities and the assets increases. And mm -hmm. that is very difficult to invest your way out of. The financial services community, intuitively or maybe explicitly, understands that. Uh, but they also understand that that communication is one of the it's it's just an extremely difficult thing for families to do. I mean, mm -hmm. the whole field of psychology is based around trying to minimize the wreckage of of the gap in communications between people. Uh, so to that end, I think the financial services community says, geez, you know, there are a lot of different biases, a lot of different fears, a lot of different issues that are out there and that maybe our investment uh, criteria, our investment products, our way of doing things is one way to address the issue uh, in a way that's also profitable to us. 
me, us meaning the investment community. I would say that the way to address that, uh, if you're a family uh, of means, and even if you're not a family of means, but if you're able to surround yourself with the independent advocates and the experts that uh, are advising around the different components of your uh, wealth situation, that to me is the way to uh, cut through the noise and the chatter. Uh, family offices, I think, intuitively understand that. And a lot of the structures that are in place are, are oftentimes gatekeeping structures. Uh, there are a lot of people who want their time, even more people who want their money. Uh, and so there are a lot of sales pitches going on. Uh, I know from my own personal experience, and I'm not a big investor by any stretch of the imagination, but you know, when jangly keys are going on up here and you know, the AI over here, and this different idea that can change the world, I'm always polite enough to listen and then I get engaged. And then if you have a particularly smooth salesperson or a charismatic figure at the front of it, uh, sure, that's very interesting. Where's my checkbook? Um, and I think in, in many ways, the, the principles of governance around businesses, boards of directors, uh, independent outside experts, things like that, those concepts are useful in the family environment as well. Even if you're going down to the mass affluent and below, uh, I think having people that know what they're talking about that you can lean on and that you can get multiple sets of opinions uh, helps to uh, keep the people who are advising you honest. Uh, mm -hmm. And it keeps the, the vendors that you rely upon to provide the services that you need, whether it's a broker or you know a bank or something like that. If they know that you're being advised by someone who's within the industry, Industry and as your advocate there, they are going to think twice, three times, four times before really laying on the sales pitch. And, in, and if you can get those people in alignment with your goals, then suddenly you're using the industry as opposed to having the industry use you. It's fascinating because uh, listening to you, I'm thinking that excitement and successful investing don't rhyme. And uh, I had Victor Hagani on the on the show who wrote Missing Billionaires. He was one of the founding partners of long-term capital management that I'm sure you've heard of. Mm -hmm. And uh, he had liquidity events in his own life, and he had experience and, and an understanding of the world of finance and money. And when he was in a position of investing his own money, and he shares a, quite an intimate story in, in the episode, he experienced what the families you describe experience, which is all kinds of ideas and, and deals and pitches come their way, and they each one sounds more exciting than the other. And it's very disorienting and confusing because you think that's how wealth should be invested by chasing all those deals. And it's not the case. And he had a revelation and then managed his own family money in a more disciplined, long-term way. And he realized it's just not the right way to go about it, chasing those deals and building a different plan, which leads me to the next question and another quote from your book, which is about anticipation. You say that anticipation is one of the most valuable aspects of having a seasoned wealth management advisor. And it makes me think of that image that it's not about seeing where the ball is, it's trying to see where the ball will be. And uh, in individual investments, all the way to a big plan for the family. It's the anticipation of what's yet to come. That's where the value added happens. And I really like that. And it made me pause 
Tell me more about that. So I borrowed from uh, a doctor turned uh, Senator Bill Frist. He, he said, you know, my job as a heart surgeon is listen, diagnose, fix. And I think a lot of wealth managers do that. They, they listen, they, they take in data from the client, they diagnose mm-hmm. the situation, and then they fix the problem. The ones who elevate um, and who are thinking, looking around corners, uh, diagnosing benign neglect around uh, the different advice that they're getting, those types of things. They're the people that in that cycle of listen, diagnose, fix, add in the concept of anticipate. Uh, Mm -hmm. And so in my practice, I'm, I'm not just trying to sort of execute on what's in place and making sure that that goes the right way. I'm looking around corners. I'm trying to diagnose risks by trying to see the unseen or anticipating what's coming down the pike. Uh, And that also can sometimes uh, uh, sort of open up different opportunities too. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, that anticipation component is really, I think, where great wealth managers earn their fee. Uh, And if you can get people to not only sort of anticipate what you think that the problems are going to be, but then build in the communication and the context of the why things are being done mm-hmm. and communicate that to your constituencies. And in this case, I'm really sort of focusing on the family. When surprises inevitably spring up, uh, the context for why things were put in place becomes more apparent, it may not work, but at least you tried and the, the why you did it is becomes apparent. Then the potential for conflict amongst and between family members, it, the the damage that that can cause can at least be mitigated. Uh, it may mm-hmm. not be removed, and people could have cross feelings or think things should have gone a different way. But the the anticipation component to me is really just an exercise in developing deeper and deeper communication with. Uh, the different the different parts of the family and the different constituencies that the family the family's legacy wants to address, and making sure that 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 communication is strong and forward and clear uh, that ultimately reduces the delta, hopefully between the liabilities and the assets going forward, and the family's legacy has a chance of getting past three generations. It makes me think of another big question that I actually pondered with a friend the other day who was in the industry about the value and the price, the value that you add to the client and how it's priced by the market. And there might be a certain imperfect pair here because sometimes the most valuable moments happen that are outside of the official billable time or they there's a moment where you, you step in and you offer some uh, kind of a device in a delivered in a very special way that has nothing to do with the portfolio itself or with a legal document. If it's, but you, they come back to you. The client comes back to you and and points out this was the moment where I really was glad that you were in my life. And then it makes you think the pricing side is kind of very mechanical. That it's you know a, a, if, whether it's by the hour or is it a fixed fee or is it a you know percent of assets, but the two. Obviously, you know, in an ideal world, they, they correlate. But sometimes the moments where you add the most value, it's outside of what 
you think is being priced. Do you have some thoughts about that? I think it's it's a unique way of uh, looking at the service that we provide. Well, a lot of ink has been spilled and a lot of pixels expended on the idea of aligning uh, the payment for service with the business model with uh, the client's goals, etc. I've made peace with the notion that the value that I add may not be reflected directly by a certain fee or uh, an hourly rate or something like that. Uh, I It's strange to sort of ascribe faith to this industry. I have faith that if I do right by people, that good mm-hmm. outcomes will come and that I will, I will get that back in a karmic way in quadruplicate. Uh, and <laughs> I like that. Sometimes that sometimes that happens, and sometimes it doesn't. And um, and maybe that makes me a bad business person, but I don't think so. And I definitely sleep well at night, knowing that if I'm uh, uh, if I'm a forceful advocate for my clients, both you know helping them arrange their affairs and then interacting with the different systems that implement that advice, et cetera, uh, they're going to end up doing okay. And then I'm going to end up doing okay by extension there. Uh, and so how that happens, I think I, I, I lean, the lawyer in me leans on the idea that if we can make this as transparent a situation and there are no surprises behind it, uh, there ultimately won't be many tears if there's a problem. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of debate as to whether the 1% AUM is appropriate or whether, you know, sort of Mm -hmm. fee for service or hourly. And I, you know, I I think ultimately I don't, I don't get wrapped up in that really. Uh, I I never really did. And I certainly aren't, I'm not going to spend any energy worrying about it too much. Uh, If clients feel like they're getting good value, they'll continue to pay you. And if they don't, they're not. And uh, ultimately, it's up to me to uh, continue to uh, help clients identify issues, anticipate issues, uh, and you know, create the ecosystem to help solve them and, and create a method for them to communicate with themselves and get their legacy uh, as well established and perpetual as I can as I can do that. I like the idea of being of service to others. I grew up in a household with two doctors, physicians, and I knew that they went out of their way on so many occasions where they were not really paid for the effort that they were making, and it was a higher calling. And I think a couple of people in the industry told me that what we do is it's a higher calling because you're taking care of a livelihood of so many people, not just the ones you know, but their kids and grandkids and all the unborn generation. So it's it's a huge responsibility. My grandmother, when her contemporaries were retiring, she decided to stay and continue her work. She was an accountant and took over a failing senior citizen home and built a new one next to it and had a lot of joy and satisfaction out of providing the service to people. And it wasn't a monetary motivation. I think the best people in this industry, they kind of have to surrender the purely monetary uh, focus because it's that's not what it's about it's really a higher service that you provide to individuals that might be very uh, you know trusting dependent vulnerable in moments and you take on a, a very responsible role here so that's something to keep in mind to make it you can you, you can see you can see gratitude in people's eyes and, of and if you and if you don't if if you don't um 
if you don't groove on that, then it's the wrong industry for you. Uh, You know, the monetary rewards can be good and terrific and all that stuff. The intellectual rewards can definitely be there. I like trying to be a mad scientist as much as possible, too. Uh, but ultimately if you don't see the, when you see the gratitude, if that moves you, you're in the right place. I think one honest, powerful, thank you is worth more money than you can imagine. That's true. Speaking of money, there's a question in your book that made me smile. And I think it's very relevant to this conversation. You share a story conversation that you were having with a client or a, a son of a client. And the question was, well, am I rich? And then you go on and explain a whole concept. And I've been asked that question too. And I think most people in this industry have been asked that question at some point by a client or an offspring of a client. Tell me more how you think about that question. Am I rich? It's funny because I I sometimes change my mind on that a lot, and uh, because there are there are many great frameworks to think about that. You know, there's sort of the technical framework, and I guess well uh, established by Scott Galloway, where he says that when your uh, burn rate is less than the passive income that your wealth generates, that you you are not really actively worrying about anything that your cash flow more than covers your expenses in many ways you're rich you you are no longer thinking about uh, uh, the day-to-day etc uh, now that said right. there are some people who look at that and say wait a minute I is my wealth having an impact does that make me rich uh, and do I have enough to move mountains or you know build telescopes or have buildings at Harvard or that type of thing uh, so the the Scott Galloway sort of income oriented approach to quote unquote rich may not apply to those people who want different things from an impact perspective right. uh, there's sort of the hedonic treadmill definition am I doing better than my uh, than my peers and having more fun and have a better Instagram account that has me on the Amalfi coast versus uh, <laughs> Iceland the next day versus uh, Bali the following weekend. And, you know, am I at this or that? That's a different definition of rich too. Uh, it, it's a long-winded way of saying that uh, the the definition of rich, uh, depending on where you're coming from, is going to be very different uh, depending on the different people you're talking to, which is an unfortunately very wishy-washy answer to your good question, which is, am I rich? I try to, uh, from a purely sort of numerical basis, mm-hmm. I, I like the idea of, of saying if the market or your wealth number, whatever that is, your net worth were to drop by 50% tomorrow, would that have an impact on your lifestyle at all? And if it doesn't, uh, then you're, you're, solidly in the camp of rich at that point uh mm-hmm. that to me is my is my shorthand for for the answer to that question the longer answer to that question is one where uh, things like control of your time uh the ability to benefit as many people as possible uh able to fulfill those personal things that 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 are central to your self-esteem uh that could be you know, someone who is not making much money, but is having an impact and that that is ticking off the boxes in their own internal 
computer that that brings them joy and and is creating the impact and, and long term component of what they like to do, those people are rich too. Uh, it's just not numerically in place. And so then when I go back to you know the day job and say you know that that's my shorthand for it. I'm not trying to purposefully ignore those people who have enough resources to not have a boss per se, or to live without want or without pain, or are able to uh, raise the level of their kids beyond what they were doing before. Those are all very important parts of the definition, and ultimately a very useful thought tool when dealing with clients in helping them understand where money fits in their life and then mm -hmm. to arrange the different planning and structures around that so that their definition of rich or their definition of successful comports with the way they handle things and then that the the values and concepts that they want to transmute to their kids and to the rest of their constituencies is consistent with uh, those things that created the money and the value within their net worth, but are also consistent with their definition of what of what success is and, uh, and what they want their uh, kids, et cetera, to strive for. It's all very nuanced and relative, and I like the way you think about it because it seems like a yes or no question, but it really depends how are you asking and what is it that you really want to hear if the question is will i have to ever work again it's a different question and uh, if you're thinking about the multi-generational fortune that's a different question which leads me to another point from your book you talk about current wealth and legacy wealth and you talk about retirement planning which i feel like a lot of attention in the investment world if you go beyond just daily trading which i don't even want to talk about in, in this conversation but Uh, if you look beyond that, you end up thinking about retirement planning because there's a lot of communication about it. There are all kinds of tools. There are savings accounts and 401ks and IRAs. There's a lot of literature and talk about it and also salesmanship around it too. And then you go beyond that and you talk about estate planning for uh, legacy wealth, wealth that will outlive you. Can you talk about those two? It's, it's really moving the time frame beyond your own lifetime. And it's a very interesting yet uncomfortable idea when you think about it. It's, it's, it's really central because I think that, you know, the retirement planning discussion is relevant to 99% of people, you know, to make sure that their lifestyle is funded once they stop working. Uh, mm -hmm. And because once you stop working, it's very difficult to go back to work. Uh, if something goes wrong, there, the, the calculations and the planning that go into that up to and including things like end of life care, et cetera, the, those are very important conversations to have. Uh, for right. those people who have uh, amassed assets and wealth beyond that and i.e those discussions are taken care of in a sense mm -hmm. you, you've you've planned for it that that's not in any sort of danger let's say uh, but then you have that wealth that's going to outlive you really in a sense no matter what then the as you say the the time horizon shifts and then there's this sort of conception or conceptual issue where your perspective shifts it's no mm -hmm. longer it's no longer self Uh, centered. And you mm -hmm. have to start thinking very deeply about other people and other constituencies, uh, other people being spouse, kids, grandkids, 
family members, etc. Constituencies being community, charities. If you have a family business, employees, vendors, customers, those types of situations where six months after you're dead, what does the world look like? And I think right. the concept of legacy wealth is really diving into uh, stepping into the shoes of other people who are affected by your presence currently and your absence ultimately. And mm -hmm. that's a that for some people is not only uncomfortable, sometimes it's difficult to visualize. Uh, and I think the really good wealth managers get to the concept of, you know, you, they get past the tax and the trusts and structuring and all that stuff. They try to get people to visualize what the future is going to look like and mm -hmm. what the risks are, what they, what the opportunities are, uh, and then what, what they want their legacy to look like uh, six months after they're dead, two years after they're dead five years after they're dead, 10 years after they're dead. And many times that's most personified in kids and grandkids and the, the sort of uh, transfer of the values that uh, the current generation came from and that either inherited or built the wealth and then, and then taking that and making sure that that has a chance of getting to the next generation so that, uh, you know, you something of you lives beyond you know your corpse uh and that the uh you know the ideals and values and thinking and uh success that you had uh is in furtherance of something bigger than yourself and some people never quite get that get to that point uh and some people really get to that point and they dive into it and they really enjoy it and and it's those conversations I think that are that are important, and that is that to me though is in the this is in a sense the market segmentation is that when you're starting to have those discussions um, about what the world looks like when you're gone, not just do it, did I execute a will and do I have a rev trust and you know some mm -hmm. of the tactics around that, like really diving into what does it look like when I'm when I'm gone five years from now, mm -hmm. uh, that to me is when you're having really next level discussions, uh, around, around the topic and you're, you're elevating the consciousness of the people who are at that current generation and really getting to make good informed decisions around their wealth going forward. There is this saying, blessed, uh, are the people who plant trees under whose shade they will or whose shade they will not enjoy. So for the next generation, blessed are those that plant the trees for others to enjoy. And I feel like it's such a powerful idea. And Tony Deden, that you might have heard of, who manages money for families out of Switzerland, gave uh, an interview and shared a story of somebody that plants um, palm trees that give dates. And those dates, by definition, that specific type of date, takes more than a generation to give fruit so the whoever is taking care of the trees right now is benefiting from whatever was planted before and planting new ones for the ones that will come after the minute you start to see that world and whether it's a hundred year vision and some people talk about the 250 year vision for a family something changes and as you said uh, it, it takes a certain leap first leap is going from getting rich to staying rich and the second leap in my mind is to see the world not in terms of three five years but a couple of generations, what would you like to happen? You have a, a really fascinating observation in the book about a windfall. 
and I, I call it sudden wealth, and it's a topic that came up in quite a few conversations in this podcast with quite a few guests. The moment the wealth arrives, whether it's inherited and whether it was anticipated or not, or it's a surprise, it's a big pay package at a firm. We have clients that experience that. It's very tempting to think that it will happen again and again. And you, you talk about the fact that it may not, but you have this way of looking at it as a, a revenue stream. So you say 10 million with a 4% return, it's 400,000 in annual revenue stream. Can you live within that? And I think it completely reframes that arrival of a windfall. So it's not that 10 million will come every other year. It might be a single time. How do you think about that? Well, I'll throw an example at that. Uh, I've dealt with a couple of athletes over the years where they get what let's call it first round draft pick money, and they <laughs> came from different. Uh, they came from uh, really uh, sort of smaller means, and the education process is to really, it, and it's very difficult. This makes athletes and entertainers occasionally very, sometimes difficult clients is that you have to teach them that not only the, the lifestyle creep, as it were, is sudden and massive when you go from zero to 10 million. And right. to try to uh, uh, jolt them into perspective uh, and to not only uh, uh, have them surmount their success, uh, but then to also creep in the idea of annuitizing uh, their wealth so that they can look uh, not just over the next one to five years, and, you know, mm -hmm. an average NFL football career, if you're lucky, lasts three years. Uh, and I'm sure, you know, as you go to the different sports, it's different and all that, but they're short. And, you know, if you get a 10 year career in anything, uh, mm -hmm. that's great. Uh, coupled that with the idea that that windfall uh, is usually half or more or less than half of what's printed in the paper due to taxes, entourage <laughs> costs, and all those types of things. You have two things you have to try to really zap out uh, uh, from that person's thinking. And the, the, the first one is that this is a usual occurrence and that it will mm -hmm. happen more than once. And the other one is to say, now is the time to be really thinking about what your life is going to look like five years, 10 years, 15 years from now. Now, contrasted mm -hmm. from what we talked about when people have sort of built an asset base that's going to outlive them, that's definitely not the case with the athlete uh, because uh, their their asset base is that contract many times. And right. uh, you're, you're dealing with, the, they are still in that current uh, current wealth scenario. Uh, and so while they are, uh, they've taken on, a, you know, a big contract, there are lots of things that threaten that that could be injuries or other types of things. The idea, whether it's the athlete or someone who gets a windfall and has not, uh, had any context for that wealth or doesn't have the numerical background or, uh, bearing in what it costs to live certain existences and then what it takes to fund those existences. That's the danger we have to try to alert those types of people to, and then uh, educate them as to the way to defend against that either through sort of good investing or, you know, other 
mechanisms and gizmos to protect people from themselves. Uh, th that's the tough part. Um, and it really comes down to the idea that that windfall is, is a lightning strike and happens with as much frequency mm -hmm. as a lightning strike. Mm -hmm. Uh, and to expect things differently than that is, is a, uh, it's, it's folly. Uh, and that's why you see many athletes and lottery winners and, and people who, uh, sort of had wealth happen quickly. It can happen just, it can, uh, unhappen just as quickly too. Uh, if, if your spending accelerates to, uh, a level of wealth that just is not supported by that initial windfall over time. In your book, you have a quote that rhymes with what you were just sharing. For people born into wealth, the lightning that struck at birth may never strike again. And then you add how they need guidance and discipline in managing their costs to remain within the confines of the wealth that has been created for them. It's such a powerful idea when you think about it. It happened it's, only it's, once, it's, and then, yeah. Yeah, I mean, li life is short, and the, the idea that these things uh, happen frequently is is a miracle unto itself. Uh, and mm -hmm. if you happen to be one of those people who, you know, earn it through, you know, a beautiful voice or, you know, a great throwing arm or something like that, there are a lot of miracles that happen along the way to make that work, too. Of course. Uh, and uh, the idea that that will happen consistently over time, uh, I think it's, it's a scary thing to rely on. And... Mm -hmm. uh, Ultimately, that we as advisors have to, it's, it, again, that's part of the higher calling to kind of keep people uh, moving uh, in a deliberate manner uh, and, and ultimately telling them no sometimes. And that, mm -hmm. that's a hard part of the job. Uh, it's sometimes you get ignored and ultimately you, sometimes you see it five or 10 years later on when they wish you had said no more forcefully or maybe they had a structure that made it difficult for them to access money for stupid things. It makes me think of a novel that I read. It was made into a movie. It's called Brewster's Millions. The book ah. is so much better than the movie. <laughs> if, you, if you read the book, it's a hundred years old book and it happens in New York. And actually, if you forget for a minute, it could have happened yesterday. It's one of those books. And it's a story of, of Brewster that uh, inherits uh, quite a bit of money. I think it's a, it's a million. But there's a condition because there's a second inheritance from another family member, I think seven times bigger, seven million or 10 million. And the idea is that he has to lose, completely waste away the first inheritance to get the much larger one. And it's just two family members that are settling some sort of a, an argument they had years ago. And Brewster ends up to being the one that has to deal with the consequences of that. But anyway, uh, reading that book made me realize that in real life, it's not a dress rehearsal. And whether it's inherited or it's a, another windfall coming from a sale of a business or an incredible pay package at a wonderful company, think for a moment that this is a one in, once in a lifetime situation. How would you think about that wealth if you can't really make big, big mistakes? There is no room. I like the term game over, do over. I had Luca Delano on the show who talks about game overs and do overs, how we play games in life that could lead to a total game over. Professionally speaking, could be a burnout. Uh, financially speaking, could be a loss, permanent loss of capital. And obviously, you know, you could lose your life in some sort of activities out there as well. 
but leaving a lot of room for do-overs. And I think that realization that that sudden wealth, whether it was anticipated or not, but substantial wealth, that you have just one chance to make the right decisions and you kind of have to learn quickly. I write about the lifetime of contributions or distributions. So somebody that's saving for retirement has a lifetime of contributions. Putting in a hundred or a thousand regularly has all the time to learn, make mistakes, and improve the asset allocation and all the choices, change advisor, and so on. But if you end up <clears throat> with a substantial wealth in a particular moment, you will be living most likely a life of distributions that you talk about, the cash flows, the streams that you will benefit from. You have to make a lot of really big decisions upfront unless they were made for you by the previous generation and quite a few things are already set up for you to enjoy. I would recommend to respect whatever choices were made before you make some abrupt changes to the setup that you have in place. And remember that's very likely a once-in-a-lifetime moment for you which is very, very hard to embrace. And I understand that. I, I, those are very wise words. Um, and I, I think, too, the idea of, of, in terms of developing the next generation around that concept, getting, uh, uh, building communication amongst siblings and family members and developing experience with money with small stakes early to me mm -hmm. is a way to mitigate uh, the crashes that sometimes happen later on in life when the family business is ready to be passed or when the will mm -hmm. is being read, that type of thing. Because that is getting the first bite at the apple at uh, experience around big money decisions at a time of maximum stress and uh, at a period where you know, things can go one way or the other. That to me is inadvisable, and that is not a good time to find out that certain people within the ecosystem are not equipped to make those decisions because that is when you could have permanent loss of capital or you could have uh, all sorts of different scenarios uh, veer off the track. There's nothing wrong with mistakes. Ideally, you want to learn from other people's mistakes. If you're going to make your own mistakes, make them as small as possible, and uh, we explored the path that you mentioned. So we... Uh, leave room for the younger generation to interact with a smaller amount and even make the decisions that they think they would like to make just to see how difficult of a game it is it makes it may seem simple but it's actually very difficult to to grow wealth over time and how quickly you can lose money in all kinds of ventures and investments i think it's something that you maybe sometimes you just have to see it to actually understand the extent of it well and the I data wanna... goes the other the data goes the other way too the people who are mm -hmm. making the plans get to see the younger generation in action and so they can mm -hmm. see who has interest and aptitude and energy uh and that 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 can be just as important in many ways because then uh, the context around the why of the structuring in the estate plan makes mu that much more sense decades in the future as the, the kids in the next generation understand the pluses and minuses and the strengths and weaknesses that they have. Uh, mm -hmm. And if you do that around small stakes events, uh, that's the time to do it, not around the bigger ones. Fraser, I have a big question for you about uh, the fears that wealthy people have, and I think we all have them. And you say that not being wealthy again, having nothing basically, is one of the, the biggest fears that people have. What are the dangers to wealth that you can think of that you've identified in your book and in your work that would bring people to uh, square one? I think Charlie Munger says uh, the last thing I would like is to start all over with nothing. <laughs> right. Well, there there is nothing that 
families, uh, and I would say spouses especially, fear more than going backward. Uh, mm-hmm. Especially, one, especially people who uh, did not, let's call it, earn or were participating in the generation of the wealth, yet are enjoying it. Uh, the idea of going backward is. Uh, that's not where people want to be. Uh, and for those, for those who've enjoyed it, they, they, it's difficult to envision a productive and enjoyable life without it. Uh, for those people mm-hmm. who came from nothing, they often don't want to go back to where they came from, uh, as far as, uh, lifestyle and struggle and things like that. Uh, I mean, that's, that's a big danger. And I think that is, uh, it's difficult to, uh, under, or it's difficult to, uh, overstate the, that fear that is there. And I think that fear is something you know, certainly the financial industry understands, uh, in many ways, that's what the annuity business is built off of, uh, is that, mm-hmm. you know, you will have a revenue stream that's certain no matter what. Uh, that's what they market to you. And that's why they are successful. Even if from a math perspective, they may not always be appropriate. Uh, Mm -hmm. But, you know, that danger, I think that that's one side of the danger. The other danger is the idea, uh, and there are many dangers, but I'll use this as an example, is the idea of building entitlement uh, in the next generation so that they are under-equipped to fend for themselves uh, in a world that uh, is not particularly enamored with them. Uh, I think the idea, there's a lot of uh, just personal experience with clients, et cetera, who say, you know, I don't want trust fund kids who uh, never had to struggle or never had to build anything or don't have the work ethic that I think was a big part of what makes me not only a successful person, but a positive person and a productive person. Uh, and that's a very real danger. And, and we we spend a lot of time talking to people about the balance between providing, I guess this is a Warren Buffett comment, which is uh, <laughs> enough for, for uh, his kids to do uh, whatever they want, but not so much that they don't have to do anything at all. Um, and, and those discussions can go on both sides of, uh, uh, the pendulum. Uh, mm-hmm. I've seen situations where families create, create what I would call manufactured struggle to try to impart right. some sort of, uh, ruggedness in their kids that ultimately mm-hmm. damages, has damaged the legacy because the kids look back and say, you know, why did they do this? This, you know, they engendered so much distrust and anger. Uh, that that ended up not working. And then on the other side, where you know the, the purse strings are off and the kids are buying Lamborghinis and they they end up not doing anything and they're not uh, they're just not productive people and in a sense not good people. Uh, you know, they're thoughtless as it relates to others. Not much of a giving uh, gene has been passed on. And there's no right answer to that either, but it is definitely mm-hmm. something where I think the really good advisors uh, try to take uh, experiences from both sides of that, cautionary tales as it were, and and help families think through what it means to be productive, what it means to be uh, a good person in society, what it means to be uh, sort of devoted to your community, what it means to give back, uh, and Ultimately, having resources to be able to do that, I don't think is a bad thing. No, that's beautifully put, and it's much more nuanced. 
topic than everybody thinks. And I think building a certain awareness, a lot of empathy in the process and just figuring out the best way to go about it. But there are big fears that you can't outrun no matter how much money you have. And I think that's something worth keeping in mind and starting from zero, as Charlie Munger says, it's not fun. And Fraser, I have one last question for you. I'm curious about your definition of success. Professional, personal, how do you think about it? How do you know you're on the right track? Is it a journey, a destination? I, I, I probably do real, <laughs> I do real well to think about that harder and harder. But to me, success is uh, being able to row your own boat financially, whatever that means to you. Uh, I think that is to not be dependent on others for your own life, to be able to then uh, to in whatever form that takes for other people, uh, you know, if you're raising a family or you're responsible for other people to, to be able to have the resources to be able to do that and to be able to generate the resources to be able to do that, I think is the, the numbers answer to mm -hmm. uh, that. And then by extension, you know, the ability to have the impact that you want to have on the things you want to have. And if that's Bill Gates, that's a different number and a different impact than it may be for someone who volunteers or has the time to volunteer at their church uh, or something like that because they're able to uh, financially uh, do it themselves. Um, the other components of success to me, I, I am a big believer, um, you know, less on the spiritual side. I'm not a particularly God and this is a sort of fearing person. I'm, uh, but I, you know, I think having the spiritual side of, of your life, something that's enriching that you feel like you're, you're part of a community and that you're helping to lift other people up, I think is important. And then the sort of a thing that is important to me is what I call keeping the creative pilot light on. Uh, there's mm -hmm. something in my hardwiring, which I think is a lot different than a lot of people, definitely different in, than my industry and maybe even in law and some of the other, let's call it professions. When I'm not creating slash educating slash learning, I, I get really cranky and sort of <laughs> sick. Uh, and, uh, Part of what success means to me is to be able to have the bandwidth and the resources to uh, scratch that itch. And when when I you know when if I have to take a back seat on something like that to focus on something else, then then I then then I work harder uh, and I figure out ways to satisfy curiosities. I find out ways to meet new people. I find out ways to learn new things and go in depth. Uh, you know, I wrote a book, have a podcast, I get involved in all sorts of things that, you know, some people might say are a distraction to me, they're food for my soul. Uh, without it, uh, I get, I just, I, I get really <laughs> cranky. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> to me, that's a big part of success. Uh, you know, combine that with, making sure that what I do helps me to do right by people. And then, you know, then there's the day job part of success, which is, you know, sort of making the money that I need to make in order to, you know, do what I want to do on that front. Uh, and those are sort of the big three. Uh, I'm sure we could divide that up into, into other different tranches, but uh, uh, I have enough things going on that if I can keep it to threes, I have a better <laughs> chance of remembering and acting on these things. So that, that's, that's where my definition comes in. No, I love the sound of that. And I think you did a remarkable 
job of your book, Wealth Actually, Intelligent Decision-Making for the 1%. The podcast has the same name, Wealth Actually, and you've had some incredible guests. I, I, I really enjoy that. And I think you have so much to share and you bring a, a wonderful perspective of the work that you do. And it's a very unique world that we both operate in. And as you said, the biggest questions and the biggest answers are not in the pitch book. And you have to look a bit harder and find the right people and surround with yourself with trusted advisors because it's a, it's a big journey. And uh, the investment world is full of salesmen uh, selling things that are supposed to work out in a week or two. And it's a whole different mindset when it comes to building and keeping a family fortune. You, you really have to find people that you trust and respect who who add expertise. And when you find them, you keep them close. Uh, I, I do think that you, you keep them close and then you build uh, the next generation of people who can provide the same thing. Uh, and it just turns into a great feedback loop where you're learning from them. They're advising on your particular situation. The data goes back and forth. And you, the idea that you can create these uh, castles and moats to defend wealth, to defend lifestyle, to defend mindset, etc. Uh, I think it's a more fruitful thing to say that, you know, if, if I can build things and structures and ideas that are durable enough to withstand attack from whatever that is, yet flexible enough to deal with what we don't know is coming in the future, that to me is is the uh, that to me is a successful plan for the future because uh, things are going to happen within the next six months, ten years, hundred years that we can't even envision. I mean, a hundred years from now, you know, we we could all cars could be gone. We could be flying around with anti gravity boots. Uh, you know, <laughs> English may, English may go away. We could be all speaking Mandarin. Uh, it, 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 trillions of different outcomes for that 250 year family to try to deal with. And they're not trying to guess what all of them are now. They're trying to build things that are, uh, that deal that are flexible enough to deal with the imponderable, but durable enough to, uh, sort of pass on what's been built before and uh, create a means from which to build off of it. When I think of family wealth, I think of an infinite investment horizon has no end and it's a whole different mindset to think about it and it's a combination of the things we talked about both anticipation and a lot of flexibility you have to continue to adapt to a whole new reality and not chase the short-lived successes that the investment world is pitching to us it's a whole different mindset and the minute it clicks or instinctively people get it i think you're onto something really incredible building a legacy. Fraser, thank you so much for today. This was wonderful. I really enjoyed it. I will include all the links to your book and podcast in the notes so people can follow your journey and learn from you. But thank you so much for today. What a pleasure. Uh, likewise, uh, your questions are terrific and it got me thinking before, during and after. So I've, I've got some homework. <laughs> uh, your podcast is terrific, by the way. I, I've gone back oh, thank and you. listened to a bunch of them and uh, there's a lot for listeners to really learn from and uh, dig into. And I think I, I might have you back on the show because I feel like there's so much more we could talk about and we only had an hour, but we'll save it for next time. Excellent. Pokemon, appreciate it. Thank you. You were listening to Talking Billions. 
we talk about big ideas, big inspirations, big topics. We take on the hardest subject of all, money. But our conversations lead us to an even bigger question, what it means to live a rich life beyond money. If you enjoyed the show, please take a moment and follow, subscribe, rate, and share with friends and family. We rely on word of mouth to promote the show. One click for you means the world to us. Thank you. Until next time, your host, Bogumil Baranowski. The content of this podcast is for general informational purposes only, and so are the opinions of members of Seacard Associates, a registered investment advisor and guests of the show. This podcast does not constitute a recommendation to buy or sell any specific security or financial instruments or provide investment advice or service. Past performance is not indicative of future results. More information on Seacard Associates is available in its Form ADV disclosure documents available at advisorinfo.sec.gov.